Namaste. This is Deepali Kulkarni, HF's Director of Human Rights. Today I have Lex Maharaj, a volunteer with Gauteng Hindus. In light of the recent civil unrest in South Africa, we're going to be exploring today the history of Indian South Africans and how they came to this country. So thanks so much for being with us, Lex Maharaj. Thank you very much, Deepali Ben. So uh, first things first, how did your family come to South Africa? Okay, uh, so uh, my ancestors are two parts. Uh, the one part came uh, in 1864. So Indians started arriving in South Africa uh, during the time of the British Raj uh, in 1860. And uh, there's a second part of my family that's, uh, that arrived in the early 1900s. So in actuality, I'm a third generation Indian. And they were basically brought uh, to South Africa as British slaves. Uh, uh, they worked on the sugarcane fields in the tea plantations. Um, and that is generally the history of most of the Indians that arrived in South Africa. Now, if I give you some background as to my dad and uh, the kind of uh, background that we've got. Uh, so my dad, uh, he only went to school until grade two. That's when you're around eight years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was part of a poor family. Um, he was, uh, 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 you know, uh, when he grew up, he was working, uh, uh, you know, riding a bicycle around as a postman. He was driving a bakery truck, uh, delivering bread. Uh, but his focus was primarily education. So despite uh, his upbringing and his background, uh, you know, due to his efforts and focus, uh, you know, today I'm an, a professionally registered engineer working in Africa. Well, that's a good introduction to the whole, you know, um, Indian South African experience. So Indians came to South Africa as slaves slowly um, after gaining their freedom. They were able to uh, expand in their economic uh, mobility. And now um, there's a lot of Indians that are professionals as well as shop owners. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So if you look uh, over time, despite the Indians coming in uh, as slaves, uh, you must remember there was a certain portion of them that also came in as traders, and that was mainly in the Gujarati community. But the majority of them that came in as indentured laborers, basically another name for slaves, they worked on the, uh, uh, you know, worked for the British at that time. But over time, uh, a lot of them uh, started evolving into small businesses, traders, uh, professionals. And a lot of them today even own the same sugarcane fields, um, and they are involved in the in in, in various uh, various businesses from manufacturing, uh, lawyers, doctors, engineers. Uh, you know, it's uh, they are a significant contributor to the South African economy. And to understand the demographics of Indian South Africans a little better, I'd like to focus on the religious and linguistic. Um, peculiarities. So um, I believe a majority of uh, Indians are, you know, 50% Hindu, 50% Muslim. And then there are some other religious groups in there. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, so uh, if we look uh, 50 years ago, I would say uh, Hindus were primarily the majority. But uh, over time, uh, you know, it has been reduced uh, to approximately 50% of the population being Hindu, mainly due to conversion uh, to Christianity uh, or Islam and so forth. 
So the Hindu community has been uh, slowly, slowly, uh, you know, uh, becoming eroded uh, due to westernization and uh, other influences. So when Indians first came to South Africa, they were here as indentured laborers, um, as slaves. And so, of course, there was violence that the Indian community faced at that time. Um, Do you have any examples that your own from your own family of violence or challenges they face because of being Indian generally or Hindu in particular? All right. So uh, I can give you uh, some of the information, you know, based on the childhood stories I heard. Uh, Obviously we're talking about uh, over 150 years now of history. And uh, so if we look at before apartheid, uh, as you know, South Africa had a a very dark uh, past in terms of apartheid. So before apartheid itself, uh, Indians uh, that had arrived, they had acquired property. Now that property was taken from them because there was something called forced removals, right? And that was mainly done to allocate space or prime property uh, to white persons. So Indians were moved uh, from the areas that they were in into uh, specific areas allocated to them. And those areas basically formed a a buffer zone between uh, a white area and a black area. So Indians tend to, to be in between the two. And then later during apartheid itself, Again, uh, in my own family, land was taken uh, from the family. Uh, I'm talking about my from my grandfather. And this was uh, for roads and so forth, for making roads. And these roads were running through that same land. And there was no compensation whatsoever given uh, to the family at that time. Now, coming back, looking at my dad's time, uh, like I explained, he, you know, he, uh, he came from a poor family, uh, but he told me about the time when, uh, you know, he had to start work whilst he was young. So even though uh, he might, was not even a teenager, he was out uh, in the golf, uh, you know, in the, in the golf fields and so forth. He was a caddy carrying uh, golf clubs uh, for white persons, for the white golfers. Um, he used to also tell me about the time when, uh, when he was seated on the bus and uh, when a white person entered into the bus, he had to get up from his seat and go and sit at the back. So you had to stand and uh, give your place over to a white person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this was the kind of history we faced in terms of uh, racialism, uh, discrimination. So it, it hasn't been a very uh, easy past for South African Indians. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of history uh, to unpack there in terms of the experience of Indian South Africans. Uh, you said your family first came with the first, you, you know, you're the third generation. So your family first came with the indentured laborers. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I think, uh, so like I explained in 1900s, my great grandfather uh, arrived uh, on a ship called the Amzinto. Uh, and uh, my uh, dad's mum was born here in South Africa and my dad was uh, born here in South Africa and so was I. Uh, So in fact, uh, just to give you the story, the uh, interesting part of the story is that uh, my grandfather was born on the ship arriving here in South Africa. So at that time, as you know, with uh, Hindus, they don't generally give a name to the child immediately. 
The child is named after a few days uh, during the Nam Karan ceremony. And uh, so, uh, you know, when he arrived at the port and the white people asked for the name of the child, then they said, no, there's no name. So they called him Amzinto. And Amzinto was the name of the ship. Uh, and later on, his name was Sitaram. So he became known as Amzinto Sitaram. Uh, and even on his ship documentation, which I do have, that is the name that is shown on his ship documentation, Amzinto. Wow. Yep. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, there's a lot of rich history, and I think the situation of Indian South Africans is unique. Um, we know that, you know, Gandhi um, campaigned against apartheid in South Africa. And there's a tremendous amount of um, meaning that they, you know, that um, the movement for racial equality in South Africa has for the rest of the world. And so this piece of it, it's not just about um, white and black South Africans, but also the um, Indian South Africans and other communities that have come um, in, through various pathways that have had a tremendous effect on South African culture and um, economy. So I, I really um, want to focus now on the economic status of Indians over time, because we've seen in the civil unrest that's happened this past week, a lot of um, economic frustration. And certainly there were shops that were targeted, looted, and then burned to the ground. Um, so I want to focus on a little bit about how the economic situation of Indian South Africans has changed over time and how that has been a part of the South African economy and uh, country as a whole. OK, all right. Uh, you mentioned Gandhi. So uh, just to uh, expound a bit on, on, on Gandhi, because he is a very important part of our history. He was in South Africa for, I think, 27 years and uh, he you can say, you know, in summary, he helped very much uh, with human rights issues uh, that related to both Indians and Blacks. So it was not just for the Indians only. And another key part of it was Gandhi founded the Natal Indian Congress. And uh, that, in fact, was the foundation of today's South African uh, government, which is run by the ANC. So the ANC, uh, the foundation of it was laid uh, by the formation of that Natal Indian Congress. So he played a significant part in that. And, uh, you know, it is sad to see that that same ANC that was founded during that time, that elements within that ANC uh, I would say, and that is my opinion, is that various factions in there have been responsible uh, for this attack that we have faced today. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, about the economic status uh, of, of the Indians. Uh, so uh, one thing you must realize is that, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, we have evolved uh, from, uh, you know, simple slave traders, uh, sl slave persons to uh, to becoming involved in business. Now, what you need to understand that the Indians arrived at a particular province in South Africa at that time, um, and it is called KwaZulu-Natal, right? And there's a main city in there, which is Durban. And uh, you will find a lot of the Indians based in that particular area. And given apartheid and so forth, you will find there's some specific areas that are still today uh, denoted as Indian areas. Although South Africa is open to everybody today, but uh, 
if you take the areas of Phoenix and Chatsworth, Isipingo, and some of these areas, they are primarily Indian areas because that's where Indians were, were put uh, by the uh, previous apartheid government. Now, also, you've got to realize that uh, this is not the first time that there's been rioting here in, in, in South Africa. You've got to look back at the fact that in, uh, if we take an instance, for example, in 1949, this was uh, far be- before my time, uh, and uh, my dad was still young at that time. He was born in 1938, uh, so uh, so he was still, uh, you know, he was not even a teenager at that time. So I'm talking from uh, stories I've heard and history that we've been told. Now, what had happened there in 1949 that uh, the, you know the Indians were having. Uh, uh, distributing the farm produce in the uh, in the market, and uh, apparently there's a story that a particular youngster came from the black community and uh, he he stole some of this farm produce and he was caught and beaten uh, by the Indian uh, market the people that were in the market. And uh, that rioting, uh, you know, from then onwards, uh, quite a bit of rioting and so forth happened. Uh, a lot of protesting, mass protesting that spread, spread from the city of Durban to another city of uh, Peter Marisburg, almost an hour's drive away. Uh, this was very much widespread at that time. And uh, again, what happened during that time, there was shops that were burnt, businesses that were burnt. There were even homes that were burnt. And what happened is those Indians, they, uh, you know, they had to uh, run from their homes. This was particularly an area called Cater Manor. And, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, they had to go and seek uh, asylum somewhere else. Um, and even during this time, there's uh, in our documented history, there is uh, uh, photographic evidence of white persons inciting this violence as well. Uh, and uh, they were they had covered themselves with uh, black polish, right? So when the polish was removed, you realize it's a white person. Uh, and the reason behind all of these kind of things was you got to realize that the Indians were becoming successful during that time. Uh, the, uh, the whites started realizing that, you know, you need to suppress these Indians to some level because uh, they seem to be becoming progressive. They, uh, they are establishing themselves in business. And there was obviously the worry that so many Indians are here in this, in this province and they, they're going to take over this, uh, over this particular province. So the reason why I brought on this 1949 riots, it relates very much to what is happening today. So I just want to draw a comparison in history and show you, you know, where this kind of history is repeating itself. So uh, now, given that the homes of the Indians were burnt during that time in 1949, uh, when all the rioting and so forth started happening now, uh, just after all the shops and businesses and so forth were looted, the next step for the looters was to start attacking the Indians in the, in the Indian residential areas. Um, so obviously it was, uh, you know, it, it, there's an intent from the, the, the communities to start protecting themselves. Right. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about that a bit later. But uh, what I want to let you know is that, that at that time, though, uh, the Indian government had intervened in 1949 uh, with the South African government. And at that time, it was uh, Jan Smuts. And because of in- international pressure, uh, the president at that time, Jan Smuts, he got involved uh, and he promised to stabilize the situation. And he did do that. Right. Uh, however, the Indian government had sent a ship 
to uh, to South Africa, and some Indians had uh, taken the option to leave at that time, whilst others stayed, right, with the hope that everything would uh, normalize uh, and and so forth. So I'm letting you know this because that is the same situation that we are facing right now is again in history where the South African government uh, was contacted, I'm talking about the ANC uh, government of today, uh, was contacted again by the Indian government during this time of uh, protesting and rioting and so forth. And in particular, it was uh, the Indian Foreign uh, External Affairs Minister uh, Jay Shankar that had dealt with our South African uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Naledi Pando, where he conveyed his concerns. And you will see also in, uh, in in the press that has been distributed uh, on social media and everywhere, uh, from the BJP party, there was uh, Dr. Vijay Jolly, who engaged with the High Commission of South Africa in Delhi. Uh, and he had sent through a letter, quite a strong letter, uh, you know, demanding the safety of the Indians. So whatever happened in 1949, again, the Indian government has uh, gotten involved to, to, to assist the the Indians in South Africa. I uh, hope it doesn't come to the point that uh, they have to send another, uh, you know, uh, ship or plane or whatever it is to come and collect Indians from South Africa. There's a lot, I think, of challenges and the history of, you know, the racial tensions in uh, South Africa is definitely fraught. And I, I want to touch upon um, briefly the history of of Uganda and what happened there and and kind of just trying to understand how Indians have been treated in the African continent and how there may be some similarities between the situation in South Africa and what happened in the past in Uganda. All right. So, uh, you know, uh, what is perhaps uh, difficult to explain, but easy to give by example is if you look at Indians, wherever they've gone, whether it was in Fiji or Trinidad and Tobago, Suriname, uh, Uganda, Kenya, anywhere they've gone, uh, they tend to, especially if they are in communities, they tend to work uh, very much together to build their schools, their education, their, uh, they start look after their community uh, and their focus is development, uh, education, advancement, economic advancement and uh, cultural and so forth. And they bring along their culture, their language, their, uh, and they're very much a peaceful nation uh, you you know it can be considered uh, an example that when you looked at the the slaves or the indentured laborers that are, uh, arrived here in South Africa, you know they came with uh, you know with one bag tied on a stick uh, that they carried on the on the shoulder, and the other hand they had a Bhagavad Gita. That was it. Uh, so that that is how these people came uh, to South Africa. You got to realize also that before uh, the the South Africa the Indians arrived in 1860, that was the majority brought by the British Raj. Prior to that, and I'm talking 200 years before that, there was the Dutch East India Company that uh, had established the trading route between India and using South Africa and so forth. Uh, it used to go via the our Cape Point at that time. And uh, so a lot of Indians were actually brought in by the Dutch East India Company as slaves as well. They were also, uh, you know, they were, uh, some of them were married to these uh, traders. Uh, and there's even evidence today in South Africa that some of the whites, uh, uh, the Europeans in South Africa, they have Indian ancestry because of the Dutch East India Company. So, uh, you know, there's a small component of Indians that were here before us uh, in, in 1860. Now, uh, what you got to look at is, uh, let's talk about the, the population breakdown. 
uh, in South Africa. You got to understand that in in terms of how we affected by uh, Kenya, Uganda, and so forth. I, I think uh, let's definitely get into the population. I just wanted to clarify um, what I was getting at with um, you know uh, touching upon Uganda. Um, in Uganda, um, Indian immigrants also came as laborers there. And in 1972, they were, there was an expulsion of um, Indians and Pakistanis, um, Hindus, Muslims, and those from other religious traditions from Uganda. And this was, you know, definitely a, a dark time uh, for Indians in Uganda. And they immediately, I mean, they had to leave. They could hardly, you know, collect their things um, <laughs> before, you know, uh, being forced out of the country. And then many of them, you know, um, it's a question of where would these refugees go? Um, where, um, you know, how would they make a living? So that was, you know, just one person's decision. Um, the president, Idi Amin, decided that the British Asians needed to be removed from Uganda and that quickly took place. So, I mean, there, in terms of the situations, for Indians in Africa, there are a lot of challenges. By and large, they came as indentured servants or um, laborers, very you know low on the economic ladder, um, but were able to climb their way up. Um, but there have been tremendous challenges in terms of um, human rights, um, as we see from the example of 1972 with when Idi Amin, you know. Um, decreed that all of the, all of the Indians, all the Asian, quote unquote, Asians, uh, Indians and Pakistanis should uh, have to leave the country, um, which, you know, is terrifying to be, just be forced to leave your country and not know where you can even go. Um, I can only imagine the, um, the strength and um, the faith that it took to get through that for those um Indian Ugandans and Pakistani Ugandans. But um, back to your point about um, South Africans and um, what their, you know, how their economic situation has evolved. Okay. So I just want to add on something regarding uh, Uganda, Kenya, and so forth. So, uh, yes, this was prior to me even being born that the issue happened in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Uganda. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, those Indians, uh, a lot of them left, went and settled in the UK. They just had to leave everything as it was there and uh, the plantations and so forth, tea plantations, for example, were handed over uh, to to local persons, which uh, unfortunately could not continue their business. It, you know, it eventually the Indians were called back, but not all of them came back. Now, if we take uh, apart from Uganda, right next door is Kenya. Uh, if you look at the Indians there, they regarded as a tribe. So it is in the constitution uh, of Kenya that Indians are a tribe of they are recognized as a tribe in Kenya. You are not called Indian. You are called Kenyan. In South Africa, we are not, uh, you know, yes, we are South African, but we are classified as South African whites, coloreds, blacks, and Indians. So those are the four race groups. For example, in the U.S., the word colored is not allowed, but here in South Africa, uh, we have coloreds. And coloreds, uh, you know, uh, uh, to give you an example, is, uh, you know, uh, there are mixed races between black and white persons or between uh, Malays and black persons. So they've been uh, assigned a race grouping of coloreds. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, if you compare East Africa to South Africa, yes, um, you know, South Africa's history is perhaps a bit more newer than that of uh, the changes that happened um, in East Africa. Uh, but at the same time, you can see Af South Africa itself has not totally evolved from the concept of race. Um, race is still a, uh, you know, you are classified by race. In fact, in my identity document, uh, a South African identity document, it says race Indian. So it should not be there whatsoever, but you can see the difference that uh, allocated to us. Then uh, with regard to, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Indians and the trouble that has been happening here and the struggles that have been faced in Africa, I, I think, yes, Uganda was definitely one of them, but I don't think places like Tanzania and Kenya have faced that kind of a problem. Uh, it is just, uh, you know, that problem is happening here in South Africa. It's unfortunate that we have to consider the Ugandan situation because it's the reality of what we faced here in South Africa in that there is a possibility that should something happen that overnight uh, or within a few days, you need to be um, exported out. And we all in South Africa, Indians need to realize that something has to be done as a backup plan. You've got to have something as a backup plan. A lot of them have given the, the issues that have been happening where their businesses have been totally burnt, destroyed and so forth. Uh, they are looking at not reestablishing those businesses, but rather immigrating because they have no other choice. They are not an aggressive uh, nation that wants to stay and start fighting and looting or killing others or anything like that. Indians generally decide, okay, see here, we are not safe here. Uh, we are being targeted. We are minority here. In fact, like I was going to tell you, we only a population of about one in 1.3 million. So less than one and a half million Indians in South Africa of a population of between 60 to 65 million. Why well, I can't give you an exact number yet is because we have a lot of influx of um, foreigners, um, illegal immigrants into South Africa. If, if anything, half, half of the Zimbabwean population is sitting in South Africa. Um, yeah, so we're a very tiny percent of the population. Uh, second to us is, uh, is, is coloreds and whites, and they are also a tiny population. Whites constitute around 8 million of that 60, coloreds around 5 million of the 60. So uh, the remainder of the population uh, are local uh, black persons that are indigenous. Uh, to South Africa. But what you need to understand it's uh, in, in just in the indigenous people in South Africa, we have tribes, right? And KwaZulu-Natal is the tribe of the Zulus, right? And if you look at the past, uh, if we're talking about the past as in time of Shaka Zulu, uh, the Zulus are the most powerful leader nation in Southern Africa. They were essentially, uh, I would say, dominant over all other tribes in South Africa. And you have Koza, Northern Sutu, Southern Sutu, um, and various other tribes uh, in South Africa. Now, uh, now, if you look in African history uh, or tribal history or anything like that, generally the tribe that is the most uh, in the country tend to have the president of the from that particular tribe. Now, comparatively, uh, if you look in South Africa, the president of South Africa, he is not a Zulu, he's not a Koza, so he's not from any one of the majority groups. He's from a minority group from of the of the north, which is on the border of the next country, Botswana, and he's from Venda. So, uh, you know, uh, he's from a very tiny 
population uh, of uh, a tiny tribe in, in South Africa. And I don't think that goes well with um, local culture to be led by, uh, you know, that is my view on it. Um, but, uh, you know, th that also tends to have some issues in, in the way things are done here in South Africa. Yeah. So you've, you've clearly explained that there's a lot of, you know, the ways that different groups are racialized and they're designated to, as to be a part of a particular race, um, such as coloreds, Indians, um, whites, blacks. And so I'm trying to understand, you know, with the Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission um, that happened after the end of apartheid, you know, it was such a great example of how after such a difficult period of history, we, we face the facts and we, you know, forgive and we move on. And I think it was it's such a beautiful, you know, method of showing strength and peace in the face of violence. but. What you're describing to me in terms of uh, racial tensions that have continued since that time um, makes it seem like either the Truth and Reconciliation Commission wasn't completely effective, um, which which, of course, of course, um, you know, there's already been lots of scholarship and lots of um, activism around that. But also that there may have been issues that have developed since that time which need to be addressed. So which of those do you think are more prevalent? I know big questions, but I, I, I feel that, you know, you've, you've shared a lot about um, how the politics in South Africa are racialized. So I'd like to really understand that a little bit more. Okay. So uh, from the time of, uh, you must remember, I was still in school uh, during the time of apartheid. Uh, that was uh, when we had President F.W. Um I was just finishing school when uh, uh, Mandela was released. Um, so, uh, you know, we were the young generation at that time voting for a freedom and uh, non-racial South Africa and so forth. And it was a great time. Everybody was excited and happy and this, this change was positive and, uh, and so forth. And uh, yes, uh, during the time of Mandela, I think uh, South Africa was really, really prosperous. And even into the time of Thabo and Becky, uh, you know, I felt personally as a South African, uh, you know, uh, I felt South African. I felt great of being in South Africa. I love this country. Um, I think uh, uh, what happened afterwards uh, was during the reign of uh, President Zuma. And remember, President Zuma is the one that is uh, uh, currently being arrested uh, just uh, some weeks ago. And, uh, you know, a lot of this violence had started, started off with the Free Zuma campaign. So during Zuma's time, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, there was, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not blaming that particular president, but what I'm saying is that during that time, there was an increase in the amount of looting, corruption, and so forth in government. So service delivery declined. Uh, you know, there was tenders being given to pals and brothers and uh, family and friends. And uh, we had, uh, the, you know, Zuma's involvement with the Gupta family and so forth. And suddenly Indians became targeted for, you know what, uh, you were involved in corruption. And, uh, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, you got to realize whether it was the Gupta brothers or, or Lux Maharaj himself that was given that position to, uh, to deal with the president at that level, that, um, uh, you know, if you had the opportunity to do business and gain for yourself, you would go so, do so. You know, it's, it tends to be the generic way of things happening when it comes to business. But in the case of the Guptas, obviously, 
there seems to be have been uh, more taken uh, than what was allocated. Uh, so th that relates to the issue of state capture, right? So the state was captured uh, by the, the Guptas, right? Uh, where they were even choosing who's going to be the next minister of finance and things like that. I should have actually applied for the job myself. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, that aside, but the, the problem there is when that happened. Uh, now, if your leadership uh, is involved in looting, in uh, not following the law, in uh, blatantly disregard of law and running the country in that way, then naturally the people start also becoming, uh, to an extent, uh, you know, that, that lawlessness starts put, filtering into uh, into everyone else. Now, even though uh, there was a change uh, from President Zuma to uh, to President Ramaphosa, and Ramaphosa has made a lot of positive changes and he has made efforts to, uh, you know, to remove corruption and so forth, and uh, the arrest of President Zuma, uh, I would say, has some relation to all of this as well, in that uh, I think uh, the current president is trying to get the law to deal with all those that detracted from uh, their functions, uh, whether it was the previous president or any other ministers and so forth. Now, from my viewpoint, looking at all of this and as to why it happened, um, you must remember that uh, Indians, blacks and whites, uh, after the, uh, you know, during Mandela's time and so forth, you know, there, there was some issues in, uh, in the country, but <clears throat> generally, it was a sense of unity. It was a sense of togetherness and so forth. If we look today, even though after the incident that happened in, in this uh, province of KwaZulu-Natal, who is building, uh, who is cleaning the roads? It is black, whites and Indians together. Uh, who is rebuilding? It is black, whites and Indians together, right? But who is causing some protest and inciting hate and racial violence so, and so forth is coming uh, from the top. Right. And why I'm saying it's coming from the top, because if we look at when this uh, when this violence uh, erupted in South Africa, in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal, it happened immediately after just just a few days after the arrest of President Zuma. It started with the Free Zuma campaign. It was driven very much by his children, uh, his son and daughter. And then remember that the ANC still has factions and splits in the ANC that is pro Zuma and those that are pro Ramaphosa and so forth. So given that, uh, you know, Zuma got arrested and those that were pro-Zuma, I would not say all of them, but uh, perhaps some of them were involved in this uh, corruption cases or tender uh, irregularities and whatnot. They knew their time was coming that this current president or the current government is pushing to chase out corruption and uh, they were most likely going to be targeted. So the best way to resolve the, their future was to ensure that Zuma got freed. They uh, uh, created a coup versus the current president, uh, Ramaphosa, get him out uh, and prevent themselves from being uh, attacked, affected or being called to court or called to to answer on uh, whatever they were involved in. So I think uh, this was very much driven from the top, from the government level. It was people involved in the Na National Executive Council, uh, ministers and so forth that were uh, inciters of this violence, driving uh, this message through, through. I think what they didn't realize is that the communities would eventually stand up for themselves and start defending themselves, and that the uh, foreign governments, such as the Indian government and various other governments, uh, start getting involved in expressing um, 
uh, you know, concern for what was happening in South Africa. So eventually it had to stop. It had to stop. Uh, but I don't, uh, as much as one would say, yes, let's blame the looters that's on the ground. But uh, the looters have come up, grown up, and a lot of them were youngsters and, uh, you know, uh, I won't say old people, but middle to younger generation people that um, have been faced uh, with life of poverty, faced uh, seeing the uh, presidents uh, and, and the, the ministers and the abuse and the, uh, you know, of resources, corruption, tender, you know, tender irregularities, whatever it is, that's what they grew up with. And when it came to service delivery of basic water, electricity and so forth, they don't have it. Uh, there was promises made for houses. They don't have it. Now, all of this builds, you know, hate. It builds, uh, it, it, it builds animosity, you know. Uh, so I think along with Zuma being imprisoned and then this incitement of violence coming from the top, they, you know, all of this just mixed up and became this one burst of anger where they just went out. And you know what? Now that we have the opportunity to take TVs, fridges, mobile phones, we've never had this before. Furniture, clothes, Nike shoes, you name it. That was it. It was looted. Um, why this, why everything was burnt there afterwards? I don't understand. But, and, uh, but you know, I, I think the, the intent was to, to uh, economic sabotage the country and force the current president and government uh, to release uh, Zuma and also for him to step down. Um, so that that was the only means that uh, I believe the other factions and so forth had to uh, to try and uh, do all of this. Now, given that everyone is working together to rebuild that uh, that city and their business or whatever it is, clean up the city and so forth, why is it that there are still uh, persons uh, that are in government, and that is like, for example, Julius Malema in the EFF, that are still inciting hate. They are still inciting violence. They are still saying things that want to, that rather than being peaceful and let's, you know, work together, rebuild or anything, those words are not there. It's about, you know, if you don't do this, uh, then there will be that threat and, you know, and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I think if, if I was to go far as to say, you know, to the international community, see uh, all these guys that have been involved and they are uh, ministers and so forth in the South African government, you know, stop them from, allow, uh, don't allow them to, to travel to your country, force them to stay in South Africa and deal with the issues. They need to put pressure on the South African government to, hey, stop coming here for holidays and giving us long, sad stories about how you're going to fix this and that. Sit and do it in that country. Show us that you can, uh, you can stop the violence, stop the racism, start service delivery programs, reinvest in your own country. Don't ask us for money because you have. South Africa is one of the richest countries in Africa. Uh, you know, uh, the only one close to us is Nigeria, really. Uh, we have all the mineral resources and everything. Um, and uh, we have been the economic hub of Africa. Uh, but, you know, if you look at if you look at all the state owned entities in South Africa are failing, that is from the South African Airways, the South African Post Office, the South African National Defense Force, the South African Police Services. In fact, in KZN, during the time of the looting and that the, the police services did not have ammunition. The local community got together money and bought ammunition from a different province to provide them with ammunition. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, all the budgets for the uh, South African National Defense Force have been cut. They don't they they have systems and whatnot uh, poorly maintained uh, and so forth. 
So all of this brings me kind of to why are, why are we talking about the history of South Africa in the light of all of this violence? And it's because of, for a few reasons, I think um, whenever we're talking about the violence, um, there's a lot of racial components. There's a lot of um, politics, of course. So um, I, I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, after, you know, um, the efforts for truth and reconciliation, there was a lot of peace in South Africa, but uh, it was during President Zuma's time and after um, he was arrested that it really catalyzed a lot of violence and a lot of protests that evolved into rioting and looting um, and arson and murder. So uh, which we haven't touched upon the murder yet, but um, we'll save some of that for our upcoming conversation um, with another um, community leader in South Africa, which in which we'll discuss all of these different um, components of the a recent violence. But um, the reason why we're focusing on the the history of Indian South Africans today is because precisely uh, because a lot of Indians have been targeted due to the violence and some of the, you know, videos that I've seen of, you know, particular individuals, either in social media or in person, speaking to the masses, galvanizing them, um, trying to explain that Indians came as slaves and they need to understand their place, um, that Indians need to be attacked, um, videos of, you know, Indian individuals who were murdered, all of that, um, really is concerning. And I think, I mean, that's really, um, what we're going to get into next time, but all of this history, um, from, um, the time that Indians first came to South Africa to present really speaks to how complex the issue is. So there's not just one reason um, why I think Indians are being attacked. I think certainly um, you've gestured towards some of the racial components, but also that economic prosperity, that economic frustration um, leads to targeting of businesses and businesses are primarily owned by uh, in Indian South Africans um, in, in some of these places. So there's a lot of different components um, to why Indians are in particular being targeted, but definitely Definitely offering some prayers that uh, things can calm down. I know there are some protests scheduled. So final thoughts on the upcoming protests that are scheduled and, you know, what uh, the international community should know now about what's happening in South Africa. Well, uh, I think, first of all, uh, you know, protests are illegal in South Africa. You're allowed to protest if you get permission to, to do such protests, as long as such protests uh, follow the rules and it is a peaceful demonstration and no damage to property and uh, and uh, affecting others and so forth. So uh, those protests that are ongoing, whether it's uh, whether they're protesting for uh, whatever it is, service delivery and so forth. But uh, there are protests that are coming up uh, with Black Lives Matter. Now, this one I want to focus on because what they are doing is they're trying to change the narrative that, uh, see here, it is uh, it, the Indians attack the Blacks, and that is not, not correct. Because here, if you look at all the videos that happened from the 9th to the 17th of uh, July, you will see it is primarily Black persons that were involved in the looting, the burning of trucks, the destruction, the carrying of goods and so forth. It's, it's all in the videos. You do see videos of where 
there are uh, community members standing on the road and they start shooting and so forth because what is happening in that particular situation you must understand it's it's in the uh, residential area these people have their families there their wives their children their, their property uh, elderly whatever it's all in that area and when the mobs enter into uh, in, into the into the residential area given what they did in the business areas just you know absolute looting burning destruction killing whatever it is that was what was uh, planned for happening in the two major areas i would say chatswood and phoenix in in, in kwazulu-natal and you'll see that the private security was deployed uh, people that had uh, uh, guns were there people that uh, came with uh, uh, golf sticks and uh, you know baseball bats and whatever they could come with uh, broomsticks and so forth they were there they were there to stand and protect the community they had no other choice what you got to understand is that the looters were also armed and they were armed primarily with illegal weapons where did the illegal weapons come from and that is because here in south africa police uh, stations have been looted uh, police vehicles have been held up and their their guns taken uh, there's been prison breaks uh, done by uh, you know uh, the community or uh, whatever you call them so access to uh, ammunition guns and that kind of thing um, it's in the hands of 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 the mass population because they've been you know uh, one of the major things you'll see in south africa is uh, you'll hear it all the time in the news is uh, you know cash in transit heists so every time you have these vehicles that go and collect cash from a supermarket and he's taking that to a bank or whatever it is that vehicle gets hit down and it is bombed there are people there with semi automatic rifles they they steal the the money and what not and, and this is this is a very severe problem in south africa it's happening all the time if you look back at the remember south africa is a very violent society right uh, it's a, we are a very violent nation have a look at uh, our history when it comes to xenophobia black on black violence right and that's when uh, you know south africans go and necklace a, a, a another black person because he comes from zimbabwe or something they put a tire around him and then they put set him alight with fuel and so forth on his body and those kind of things have been put onto social media now uh, this is south african culture you got to realize we whether you are in uh, whichever province you live in johannesburg uh, johannesburg cape town durban or any any of these cities in any part of the country your home has burglar guards on there with steel guards you have uh, barbed wire around your uh, around your around your home on your walls uh you have dogs you have uh, you know you have uh, sensors and what not and uh, many people have already been burgled a few times right so that's how we live today and we, a lot of us live in gated communities because there's safety in gated communities but now even gated communities itself is not becoming safe because your roads are becoming a problem so now you must start barricading your roads you got to get private security remember some police stations in south africa actually have private security for them you know so again you know in summary if we were to look at the message to be given to the international communities that see it south africa is a violent nation uh, there's a potential for trouble that can it can it can uh, happen at any time uh, it is simmering at the moment there's a potential if you look in history uh, for this to break out into civil war because a lot of countries in africa have 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 gone through that process where there has to be a civil war and then uh, you know uh, especially with with various tribe tribes involved and so forth uh, you know if you look at the rwandan issue the hutsis and tutsis and, and so forth you had all those issues 
uh, and I think South Africa is facing that. And we as Indians that are here, we got to realize we're in the center of all of this. And we've been used as a pawn to, to make some racial uh, alignment of something to detract from the problem that the government has. So they're trying to, instead of make it into, uh, you know, the fact that they, it was an actual coup, they want to try and make it into a racial discrimination issue and, and change the entire narrative to hide from the fact that this was what was happening within the South African government. Um, so Indians in South Africa, you know, my message to them has, and it's been to all my family, listen here, you need to be, be prepared that uh, within a few days time, you'll need to get onto a plane and leave. Uh, and uh, as soon as the violence starts, you better start, you know, you better get going because the first things they will attack is, is going to be the airports. I mean, our airport in, in, in Durban was shut down during that time, right? You couldn't, uh, there was some of the flights and that were limited during the, I mean, our primary means of transfer, to, you know, uh, internationally is flights. So, uh, you know, don't wait for the violence to break out because then it's too late. Uh, we're going to end up with the Ugandan situation very much like what Idi Amin did. You, you know, you've got 24, 48 hours, just drop everything and go. Take your bags and run. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've given all of us, I think all of the listeners, a lot to think about today in talking about um, the history and the politics of South Africa, especially as it relates to Indian South Africans. Um, there's a lot um, that that needs to happen in South Africa, certainly for um, peace to be restored. Um, so let's definitely, you know, galvanize in our communities and try and make sure our respective governments are supporting South Africa in its efforts to restore peace. Um, and, um, in the meantime, we'll be offering prayers for all South Africans to have that peace and security, um, and for the economic frustrations, the, you know, racial injustice to come to an end. Um, thank you so much, Lex Maharaj, for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate it. I know, you know, the violence has just ended and, you know, it's 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 the calm before the storm, before the next wave of protest begins. Um, so in, in this time um, after the violence, you've taken this time to talk uh, to us about the history and um, I couldn't be more appreciative. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Dipaliji. All the best to you. Take care. Namaste. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hindoamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.